Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. By 1774, the political chasm between the American colonies and the Empire of Great Britain was at an all-time high. In response to the British occupation of Boston and the passage of the Coercive Acts, delegates from the American colonies met in Philadelphia in what would become known as the First Continental Congress. Although they represented a group of politically active minds, their interpretations of the events of the previous year led them to very different conclusions, and most were far from revolution. On this episode, we discuss the occupation of Boston, the establishment of a rebel Massachusetts, and the complicated politics of the First Continental Congress. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On season 3 of the series, we're discussing the American Revolutionary Era, the people, places, and ideas that defined it, and the political ideologies that gave rise to the world's first truly modern republic. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer, Check up on news, appearances, and events on my author's website, bradykreitzer.com, and of course, your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. In this episode, we continue our discussion of the political battle for the soul of British North America, a political battle that on both sides has caused very reasonable, rational people to behave in an irrational fashion. We've seen bloodshed already, and we're going to see more today. A quick review of the events that are going to lead to the year 1774 and 1775, which we'll broach into on this episode, will be as follows. The Seven Years' War comes to an end. A tremendous war debt has been accumulated. The British have to get rid of it. Of course, the way they choose to is by taxing the American settlers, as well as cutting the spending of the American settlers. Now, this has manifested itself in many different ways, but by the time you get to 1774, you've seen a very troubling trend develop if you're someone who loves peace and loves overall prosperity and certainty in the 18th century world. In 1768, we've seen Boston, Massachusetts really emerge as a center of rebellion and insurrection in the minds of many in the British Empire that needs to be punished. Of course, in 1768, the British will effectively impose martial law over the city of Boston and put troops and soldiers throughout the streets in a nonviolent fashion, at least for two years. In 1770, we see this breakdown very quickly. We see a mob emerge in the streets on King Street in Boston in March. We see a small group of British soldiers feeling accosted, open fire on the mob. We call this, of course, the Boston Massacre. Now, if you're in the British Empire, if you're an administrator, 
this is a worst case scenario. The last thing you want to do is gun down your own people. But it's happened, it's occurred, now you deal with the retribution. Of course, on the American side, and more specifically, the rebellious side, the patriot side, this event will become a pinnacle, a critical linchpin in its story and narrative of British oppression and tyranny that it's been developing. This is not, as the British call it, the incident on King Street, but this is the Boston Massacre. These are both uh, political spins on the same event. Ask yourself this, which one was more effective? Well, what do we call the event today? The Boston Massacre. Clearly, you see the brand of politics that have won out. While the British will have their own opportunity to spin a series of events in their own direction, three years later in 1773. In December of 1773, a group of what are suspected to be unruly, rebellious colonists will paddle out into Boston Harbor and destroy a veritable fortune's worth of tea. Uh, in an act of political defiance, uh, we call the Boston Tea Party. In reality, as we've talked about, the Boston Tea Party was a very mild affair. It was a very orderly affair. Many, many, many chests of tea were destroyed. No tea was stolen. Remember, on the ship, one padlock was broken by the rebels, and it was replaced. This was an example of gesture politics. It was a controlled affair. It was not a riotous affair. It was not an unruly affair. Certainly, it damaged property. But it did so, I suppose you could say, in an orderly fashion. Well, from the British viewpoint, this is nothing short of terrorism. How can we negotiate with these people? Look at what they're willing to do to prove their point. From the American vantage point, this is not economic terrorism. This is a tea party. And of course, they label it the Boston Tea Party. Now, ask yourself, which political spin wins the day? What do we call it today? We call it the Boston Tea Party. So you see how that works out. What we're setting the stage here for, though, specifically, is the fact that a, an individual person with political leanings is a rational individual. But when you mix them with like-minded people, and you allow very powerful individuals operating behind the scenes to give them directives, to point their anger in the direction that they choose, they begin to behave in an irrational way. I'm going to say this a lot this season. I hope you can say it as a mantra by the end. But remember, the American Revolution is a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. It's what we're seeing develop already in 1773. Now, we don't want to spend too much time uh, catching up because we have previous episodes that go into all of these events on their own. But we do want to set the stage for how the British respond to the events of 1770 and the eventual fervor that leads to something really as drastic as the Boston Tea Party in 1773. By the time the year 1774 comes around, the British have hardened their position. King George himself desperately wants to show the Americans who's in charge. He is. More specifically, his empire is in charge. But he understands that if you push too hard, you'll not only alienate further the people who already dislike you, uh, but you also bring new people to the cause. And this is something, as the British Empire looks, they cannot afford to do. Unfortunately, as we'll see, the hardliners appear on both sides. 
those directing their anxieties at Great Britain, however that anxiety may manifest itself, and those in Britain who are seeking to suppress uh, this voice of concern, so to speak, uh, in the American colonies. Now here's what you must understand about this political debate. It's that the overwhelming majority of people, whether they are on one side of the Atlantic or the other, are generally in the middle of this debate. I mean, I'm talking probably 15% of people on the American side are really interested in seeing rebellion and separation from the Empire of Great Britain by 1774, and probably about 15% of those on the British side view the Americans as an unruly uh, rabble of discontents and smugglers. Really, the majority of people, that other 70% are in the middle. And again, I hammer this a lot, but it's important. In politics, it's that 15% on either side, that extremist element, that leads the debate, because they're the loudest voices. Politics in 2014 are no different than politics in the 18th century. So when you let those two sides take control, you see radical uh, and, quite frankly, very costly decisions made by both sides that spur the debate and spur the course of action in the direction that they'd like. After the Boston Tea Party, we've reviewed this at the very end of our last episode, we've seen that the British have responded to the Boston Tea Party in a very dramatic fashion. They've passed what they call the Coercive Acts. The Americans will call them the Intolerable Acts. But these are all really just directed at Boston. Because in the minds of the British imperialists, Boston is the heart of this problem. Remember, going back to season one of wartime, we talk about the American colonies, the 13 colonies, like they're one unified body. And they aren't. They're 13 very different places. Just as all the way leading to the American Civil War, these states are all very different states. The British will view each colony in their empire as its own separate entity. So when they talk about rebellion overseas, they're really just talking about Massachusetts. They're not talking about the rebels of Pennsylvania or the rebels of North Carolina. In fact, the farther south you go in British North America, the less inclined individual colonies are to join this rebel conflict. We're going to illustrate that today. But with the passage of the Coercive Acts, or the Intolerable Acts, whatever side you prefer to take, you see a very clear stance of the British Empire. They will not rest until the American colonies that are even talking about rebellion accept fully and completely that London is in control, that the court of St. James, King George, is in control. And this is their official stance. Now, this will spur a lot of very difficult situations in Boston, especially in 1774. British troop presence greatly increases in Boston in 1774. Remember, we've talked about the fact that since 1768, the British military has been occupying the city, but never like this. If before they were occupying basically as peacekeepers, as people there to maintain a presence and through proximity keep uh, anger and anxiety toward the empire down, now they're on high alert. The Bostonians do not want them there. They believe they're murderers. They believe that war may be on the horizon. Remember, this is a very localized phenomenon. But what you see develop in 1774 is something we've seen hundreds and hundreds of times before and countless of times since. And it's what we talk about as counterinsurgency doctrine. 
Now, this is going to get a little technical, and it's going to go off the rails a bit from the basic narrative of the American Revolution. But remember, you're here. You're listening to this podcast because you want to look deeper. You want to explore further. You want to understand the situation as fully as you can. And to do that, you must, you must take yourself out of it as much as possible. I will challenge you in this episode, and I've said it before, and we'll do it many times in the future, to not think about this event as America's uh, search for independence. Don't look at it as America trying to push the tyrannical British away, or as the British trying to suppress these unruly and and anarchist American patriot rebels uh, into submission. Don't look at it that way. Look at this as you would look at any rebellion in any empire. Take your own emotions out of the story and view it for what it is. And you'll see an entirely different scenario develop. Now, when you talk about counterinsurgency doctrine, seemingly from the beginning of time, you always tend to see in a situation where there's one dominant superpower trying to suppress a small territory or colony that's not playing by their rules, make the same mistakes all the time. And their mistakes are many, but their biggest mistake is this. The one thing we always do in the history of the humanity, whether it be uh, the Persians trying to suppress the Egyptians, whether it be the Romans trying to suppress the Judeans, whether it be the Americans moving into Iraq, Afghanistan, or Vietnam, we always see the same thing. And it goes like this. When we look at a map of this foreign distant land, we look at first the cities. Where are they and how do they operate? Well, let's look at Massachusetts. What's the primary city of Massachusetts colony? It's Boston. So the British will roll into Boston, take control, and believe they have effectively controlled the colony. We do it all the time. Not we as the United States or the Western world, but we as a people, we as a species, do this on a regular basis. But when you capture the primary city, one thing you have to understand is that you don't capture everything. You simply force the troublesome uh, or difficult, in your opinion, population to relocate to a place they can operate with more autonomy. When you look at the American invasion of Iraq in 2003 and 2004, you'll see that they captured Baghdad, they tore down the statue of Saddam Hussein, uh, George W. Bush declared mission accomplished. Little did he know the war would continue in some way, shape, or form for another eight years. When you look at the Americans in Afghanistan, when they captured Kabul from the Taliban, there was celebration mission accomplished. And that war, as of uh, the fall of 2014, is still going on. The British made the same mistake 150 years earlier when they rolled into Afghanistan. It's the same mistake all the time. Just because you control the cities doesn't mean you control the entire region. Well, sure enough, when the British roll into Boston, all the rebel leaders all the patriot leaders, whatever you're more comfortable calling them, people like Paul Revere, uh, will roll out of the city and move into the countryside. They go into hiding. They give the British Boston because their objective is much more than just keeping that one city. 
So here's the scene. The city of Boston is under strong imperial control by 1774, but the remainder of the Massachusetts countryside is totally up for grabs. All of the major rebel leaders, all of the major people who are, at least by this point, a thorn in the side of the British Empire, have fled the city. And they've gone into hiding. They've gone underground into the countryside of Massachusetts. This is reading from the textbook of counterinsurgency warfare. What mistakes do we always make? Well, this is one of them. The British felt very well uh, in control by this point. But in reality, they only controlled the city. But they're still losing the overall war of ideology, the war of politics that's going on. Since most of the rebel leaders have moved into the countryside... It's safe to assume that most in the Massachusetts countryside sympathized with their plight. Otherwise, they would have turned them in. And you'd be right to think that. Even more than that, the people of Massachusetts believe that whatever government or legislature that currently rules over them, this British government, is ineffective. They believe that it's disenfranchising them, that it's stripping them of their natural rights. So what do they do? They form their own government, a shadow government that they call the Massachusetts Provincial Congress. And here's what you have. Technically, the British do control the colony. I mean, they control the city of Boston. They control the pre-existing legislature. But if you ask anyone from Massachusetts in the countryside outside of Boston, they don't answer to the British. They answer to this new, shadow, impromptu, unofficial rebel government, the Massachusetts Provincial Congress. The Massachusetts Provincial Congress is a very big problem for the British in Boston. Because like any government, or at least people who fancy themselves to be a government, they need a military wing. They need an army. And they begin to train an army. Not an army of soldiers in the traditional sense, but an army of volunteers. A militia, if you would. These are not people who go to a military training academy and come out with a logo or come out with a rank. Uh, they're simply farmers and blacksmiths, uh, ordinary folks who will pick up a rifle and fight when the time comes, if necessary. They don't wear uniforms. They don't dress in any sort of imperial garb that gives you any intention of who they are or what they're doing. They wear street clothes. So when you look at the experience of American soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan and Vietnam, British soldiers in Afghanistan as well, they always have the same complaint. You don't know who your enemy is until they're pulling out a gun and shooting at you. What are you supposed to do? It's a horrible situation to find yourselves in. When I hear about young men and women in combat in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, my heart just shudders because they're in a no-win situation. You can't indiscriminately kill civilians. You'll never end the war that way. You'll only make more enemies. But you don't know who the enemy is until it's too late. So theoretically, in your mind... Anyone could be an enemy. You're on edge all the time. And that's the strength of a rebel or a guerrilla or an insurgent army. You never know who the enemy is until it's too late. That's how, if you're looking at the Americans, specifically in Massachusetts in the 1770s, they even the score with what is effectively the world's largest and most powerful military, the British, at the time. It's a very bad scene. And all the colonies at least almost all of them, recognize this. And this will take us to our next topic of discussion. If Boston is in this horrible state of duress in 1774, what in the world are the other colonies doing in response? 
Well, they're not sitting idly by, at least not all of them. They're taking steps, measured steps, to approach how to deal with this situation. Remember, the British world in the 1770s, much like our own world today, is driven by money, profit, the need for profit. We live in a globalized economy. With the British Empire in full command in 1774, the other 12 American colonies do as well. They need to deal with this scenario. They need to deal with a very bad scene in Boston that could stand to cost them lots of money, and maybe even more, if they let it go any further. This will take us to the fall of 1774, September of 1774, to the city of Philadelphia, a city that, for a very long time, in the minds of the American colonies, has really been viewed as the capital or heart of the American colonies. In that fall, you'll see 56 separate delegates from all across the colonies arrive in Philadelphia to discuss these issues. What do we do about Boston? What do we do about Massachusetts? How do we remedy the situation and bring things back to some sense of normality? How do you do it? Now, some of these members of what we'll call the First Continental Congress believe that Separation from Britain is the only way to deal with this, open rebellion. But they are the minority, and I mean an extreme minority. Only a small handful of these 56 would ever say anything so radical as that. The overwhelming majority, even if they don't like what the Empire's doing, would never jump to such an extreme. Now we know how this ends, so hopefully you can see the political mechanism they use to spread that message. But most of these people are very mild-mannered as far as how they feel about the entire affair in the First Continental Congress. They meet at a place called Carpenter's Hall in Philadelphia, just down the street, if you've ever been there, from the Philadelphia State House, eventually what will become, not to ruin it, uh, known as Independence Hall. But instead they meet in uh, a much smaller building uh, called Carpenter's Hall. And for all of you conspiracy theorists out there, uh, it's a Freemason building. Save that for the History Channel, I suppose. At any rate, they all meet. They all debate. Amongst them are avid patriots, people who want separation from the Empire. Most people aren't. On the other inverse, uh, you have uh, some very intense loyalists. People like Pennsylvania's Joseph Galloway. Galloway is an extreme loyalist here. He says, yes, we're being infringed upon as Englishmen. Our rights are being attacked. But let's not be foolish here. Let's not separate from Great Britain. This is the country of our fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers and, dare I say, great-great-great-grandfathers. How can we separate from the world's largest and most prosperous economy? How do you do it? Galloway eventually will become a loyalist, and he's present here uh, at the First Continental Congress. Now, the Continental Congress, you probably know, is the Second Continental Congress. Much more extreme, uh, much more... Uh, I guess you could say, anti-imperialist. We can't have the impression that all of these men from these colonies are, are all on the same page, because believe me, they aren't. A critical part of the American democratic system that will come out of this eventually is debate. And debate is something that, for most of human history, would probably just cost you to lose your head when it came time for government. Not in the British Empire in the 1770s, but definitely in the future. Now, one of the things I always want to impress upon you is how far-fetched rebellion and revolution really is here in 1774. Definitely 
during the meeting of the, of the First Continental Congress from September to October of 1774. How, ex- how extreme is it really? Well, here's the other question. I would take it even a step further. How unified are these colonies at all? That's a very good question. Well, how many colonies show up at the First Continental Congress? The obvious answer, 13, right? Wrong. 13 colonies do not appear in Philadelphia in 1774. Only 12 will. One colony cares so little for the plight of Boston and is so content with the current imperial system, they don't even send delegates to vote yes or no on the issues. I mean, that is a very extraordinary event. The colony I'm talking about is Georgia. Georgia will not appear at the First Continental Congress. They believe in the British Empire. Uh, At least we can say they have no real grievances from the British Empire. And they are as different as Massachusetts as you'll find. Massachusetts is the heart of a puritanical, at least in origin, urban world. It's a place of cities and towns, of farming, but very small-scale subsistence farming. If you go to Georgia, how different is that? Massive plantation farms, very small population of white people, very huge population of enslaved African peoples. There's almost no slaves in Boston at this time. There are some, but compared to the major uh, cash crop producing plantation-based colonies of the South, very, very little. The people of the southern colonies don't think they're like the people of Massachusetts. In fact, they don't even want to be around them. They view them as something totally different, and, newsflash, the people of the Northeast view them the same way. Not to get ahead of ourselves here, but the origins of the American Civil War, a hundred years after this, are already pretty glaringly apparent. How apparent? Georgia doesn't even send a delegation. Now, the First Continental Congress is not, as I've mentioned, the Continental Congress that we all know and love in popular culture. They don't achieve as much as the Second Continental Congress, but given the circumstances and the wide variety of opinions, again, the Second Continental Congress, as we'll talk about, will be pretty much on the same page. Something must be done against the British Empire. The First Continental Congress is much more even-keeled, I suppose. You have a variety of different opinions on the matter. They will achieve a few uh, fairly meaningful accomplishments. Really, they had two. The first was this, and and this is going to sound extraordinary, but when you think about how legislative and parliamentary politics tends to work, this is actually pretty incredible they get this done. They, They initiate what we'll describe as a general boycott on all British goods set to begin December, two months after they they end, uh, of 1774. December 1st, 1774, an entire boycott of all British goods. This might not seem like a big deal, but this is huge because we've talked about how much wealth actually comes out of the American colonies to support the British Empire. Think about this fact. The colony of South Carolina alone The colony of South Carolina by itself produces about 30% of all of the wealth of the entire empire. Think about that. South Carolina, one colony, produces almost 30% of the wealth of the entire world empire of Great Britain. That is astounding. So with that point, I just really want to reiterate how much really is at stake 
for the British here in 1774. We have this idea from popular culture that the British are this awful, tyrannical empire who seek to do nothing but beat down the Americans repeatedly until independence is their only course of action. But look at how much money they would lose if they continued doing this. I mean, the wrong move for the British Empire will cost them dearly. And as we've said, this in many ways is a story of one wrong move after another. You have in the First Continental Congress a group of people who, in my opinion, are desperately seeking a way to get out of this unscathed. Politically, both the Empire and the Americans are really too far into this to simply back out and say, I'm wrong, you're right. I mean, how many times does that happen in politics? Almost never. But now by 1774, you're really about to cross a line in the sand. So, how effective is this boycott? Well, within one year of the beginning of the boycott, December 1st, 1774, British commercial shipping to the American colonies will decrease, buckle up, by 97%. 97%. I mean, that is astronomical loss on the part of the Empire. That is a catastrophic loss on the part of the Empire. And that will have a ripple effect, not only through just the American colonies, not only just through England, but around the world. I mean, the British East India Company is bringing tea from East Asia. They're bringing goods from India. They will begin to really feel the strains of this. And again, they're really, the I think, the best uh, sort of motivator of this world economy in the entire British system. Because the Americans, their biggest buyers, simply aren't consuming their products anymore. So we don't want to say the American Continental Congress, the first Continental Congress, was really effective because they weren't. They were devastatingly effective. Yet we often forget about them in the longer grand scheme of history, based on what the next Continental Congress is going to do a year later. Now I mentioned to you, this often forgotten, almost weakly perceived, uh, wishy-washy First Continental Congress is largely left out of the American Revolutionary story, largely because the results they produce are not a Declaration of Independence. But they do do something else that's very important for this story to continue, aside from the boycott. They also set aside unanimously that a Second Continental Congress should convene in the future as they see how events play out. Now, this is a major event, because really when you look at the entire history of British North America, we really have yet to see all of the colonies come together in one parliamentary fashion. It just hasn't happened. We've been close. Virginia, Pennsylvania, Maryland have a history of working together. The New England colonies have a history of working together. But never did North and South convene in this way uh, that they have in 1774. But remember, Georgia still hasn't shown up. So we really can't claim that the American colonies, at least not the 13 colonies we all know and love, are on the same page yet. Never mind the fact that there are other North American colonies who weren't even there. Uh, all of Canada, Colony of Quebec, uh, British East Florida, British West Florida. These are three colonies that are just as American as any other who haven't even participated. The last thing that the First Continental Congress will do is send out, at least in theory, uh, welcome letters to East Florida, West Florida, and Quebec to bring them to the table. In reality, when you look at how it plays out, only Quebec will get the letter. But they'll say, no thank you. 
they'll say no thank you. Uh, they don't want to participate in this potential rebellion. They don't have as many grievances with the British Empire as others. Uh, they don't want to participate. So why in the world? And here's another question we don't ask enough, but why not? Why in the world don't these three other colonies want to engage? Well, it's difficult for a number of reasons, uh, mostly in Florida. Florida was originally a Spanish colony after the Seven Years' War because Spain sided with France. They lost out. The British took that colony, Florida, and made it to uh, as a spoil of war. Well, because of that, most of the people who lived in East and West Florida were either A, uh, still Spanish, or B, uh, recent British transplants, either from the Caribbean or from England itself. They didn't have that same American experience growing up in America for two and three generations as many of the quote-unquote founding fathers had. They were still uniquely British transplants, still very dependent on the British for their survival. Hostile Indians, angry Spanish in New Orleans, they needed British soldiers to protect them. They weren't about to start a war against the British as it were. And what about the Canadians? What about Quebec? I mean, let's face it, they should have as much to lose as anyone else at the time. Well, here's another issue we face. The British, to their credit, proactively in 1774, passed something they called the Quebec Act which effectively said uh, anyone who lives in Canada, if they are Catholic, remember, this was all Catholic haven when it was New France, can actually continue to be Catholic, and the British will not infringe on their rights. And believe it or not, that was enough for the Francophone or the French-speaking population of Canada to really not be interested in, in most of this uh, revolutionary or rebellious stuff going on down south. Believe it or not, the population of Quebec uh, was some will say upwards of 90-95% to non-English speaking. Now, it's a British colony, but when you're 95% non-English speaking, when you're still that French, how British are you really? Well, British enough that the Quebec Act of 1774 really appeased them, really made them happy at the time. So that's what we'll see. Now, we're going to go back to Boston. We're going to see how this all plays out, and we're going to get back to the old discussion uh, of counterinsurgency warfare. We're going to view this from the British perspective today, because I think it's important, and I think it's a side we don't hear enough, but let's take a look at Boston itself. In the city of Boston, General Thomas Gage is in full command, and he has a very unfortunate job, a job he, quite frankly, is not happy with either. He believes that as Englishmen, we're all entitled to natural rights. The last thing he wants to do is start gunning down fellow Englishmen. Well, he controls the city of Boston with an iron fist. And since he's taken over in 1768, you really haven't seen that much violence since the Boston Tea Party, which was of limited violence anyway. I mean, really, since the Boston Massacre, a major violent affair hasn't occurred. But he knows better than anyone that he does not have any control whatsoever of the countryside of Massachusetts. He knows that the rebels control that. He's not necessarily anxious to march into it, but he knows just controlling Boston is not enough. Well, he also knows, because he's a man of, of, of impressive military aptitude, that most of the rebel leadership of Massachusetts has disappeared into the countryside, specifically at two cities, one being Lexington, and another, I think more aptly, at a place called Concord. Now, one of the things we can say about Gage is that he understands counterinsurgency warfare. 
He understands that even if the people of the countryside don't like you or your soldiers, if they don't have guns and they don't have weapons, they can't shoot at you. I mean, it's pretty complicated, but in the end, it's just that simple. As much as they don't like you, as long as they don't have weapons and ammunition, they can't shoot at you. I mean, this is still the case in many places in the world today. So engage his mind. What he wants to do is really twofold. Number one, capture all rebel artillery, ammunition, and guns and take them out of their hands. Don't let them use them against you. And number two, round up some of these rebel leaders that are so troublesome. Now, if this sounds familiar to you, especially if you're an Iraq War veteran from, say, oh, 2004 to 2008, it's because you probably did this exact same thing. I mean, every night when the Americans occupied Baghdad, every night, uh, unfortunately, troops had to go out into the city in the middle of the night based on somewhat shaky intelligence and go through people's garages and go through their storage units and find massive caches of weapons and guns. I mean, you open up a garage in Baghdad and you find a whole pile of rocket-propelled grenades. Well, if you capture those weapons, guess what? They're not going to be used to shoot at you in the future. I mean, it's that simple. These nighttime raids are part of counterinsurgency doctrine. Find the troublesome members of the uh, resistance, bring them in, and guess what? They're silenced. That's the idea. And that's what Thomas Gage is going to have to do here as we move into the spring of 1775. Now, in January of 1775, right after these American Continental Congress convenes, you're going to see the British actually send a directive to Gage in January telling him, use force against these potential rebel cells if necessary. He doesn't get the information until March, almost April, in fact, simply because the information has to cross the Atlantic Ocean and it takes quite a long time. Well, we often don't give the American rebels enough credit, but believe it or not, there are actually uh, informants in London on behalf of the colony of Massachusetts who catch wind of this directive before Gage ever does. They'll catch wind, they'll send it across the Atlantic. People like Paul Revere, these rebel leaders, will actually know that there's going to be a very uh, direct and very specific attempt to capture rebel guns by the British out of Boston before Gage ever gets the directive. Amazing in a world without telecommunications, that was possible. But the basics of it is this. Thomas Gage will receive the order in March to march into the countryside of Massachusetts, gather contraband weapons, and bring them back into the city. That way they can't be used against the British soldiers themselves. The Americans know this is coming. And fortunately for them, as any good rebel or guerrilla network will do, they've developed an underground methodology of communication that will operate in the shadows behind the scenes. And it basically goes like this. Because any British operation would begin in Boston itself, the people in Boston are responsible for alerting the countryside to exactly what's going to happen. The person they have uh, is the rector, is the minister of the Old North Church in Boston, as we call it today. Uh, a man that will climb into the bell tower, the tallest point in the city of Boston at the time, and ignite lanterns. Uh, he'll ignite one lantern if the British march over land, or two if they are moving to the countryside across the Charles River. This, as you can imagine, is the origin of the old saying, one if by land and two if by sea. It was actually part 
uh, of an underground network of communications to alert rebel positions and cells in the countryside of when the much larger and more powerful British forces would be moving. Now, once you're in the countryside, if you see that signal, a signal, by the way, that even if you were British in the city and you saw it would mean nothing to you, I mean, big deal, there's lanterns up in the, up in the bell tower, uh, you would continue as you're doing, right? That's the beauty of this system. It's an underground network. It's a, it's a secret clandestine network of information. But if you saw those lanterns in the countryside, you know what to do. And a series of people who see them first as you're closer to Boston will ride out, usually on horseback, always quietly, um, maybe 20 people, and they'd go door to door, people they know who also are part of the rebel movement, and they'd tell them. Then those people would ride out, and they'd tell those people, and those people would ride out, and they'd tell more people. And just like Wayne's World, by the end you have multiple people in the know relatively quickly. This system works so well, before Gage even marched his troops out of the city, all the way to Concord, uh, most of the rebels knew exactly what was going to happen. They already had taken the guns out of Concord that were stored there, that were stashed there, their uh, secret cache, as it were, in the event the British ever moved on them, uh, and they dispersed them. So little did Thomas Gage know, by the time he even gets the directive to march, most of the weapons are already gone, uh, but he's going to march anyway. Now, Thomas Gage will leave Boston, Massachusetts with 700 men. They're not ordered to shoot anyone. They're not ordered to kill anyone. They have one mission. Find these illegal weapons. Capture them. Find these troublemaking rebel leaders. Bring them in for questioning. It's that simple. Little do they know. The situation they're walking into uh, is one that quite literally will produce what we call the shot heard around the world. Now, what the British are walking into is what will amount to be the very first open battle in what we'll call the War of the American Revolution. We know that it's been building and building and building for some time, but it is about to happen. On the next episode, we'll talk about the year 1775, Lexington, Concord, Fort Ticonderoga, and Quebec. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is wartime.